the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Steve St. Angelo, who is a researcher and publisher of the SRS Rocco Report. We'll be discussing his alarming thesis that we have crossed the Rubicon, fallen off of the energy cliff, and are about to experience a never-ending economic depression. We'll also discuss the green energy myth and get to precious metals, uh, cryptos, and, and other subjects. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, how are you doing, Steve? Great. It's good to be here. Yes, a lot of interesting things happening this year, and I think it's just going to get even more interesting next year. So there's plenty to talk about. It's great to be here. All right. Before we continue, uh, as this is our, our final episode of 2020, I would like to do a quick public service announcement, something I have generally been avoiding. But for old uh, and new listeners, I recommend subscribing to our free weekly email list to stay in touch with us and get our weekly podcast and news headlines. Subscribe to all of our channels, which include for now, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Telegram, BitChute, Brighteon, MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, and Reddit. Please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps Geopolitics and Empire a lot. And finally, if you feel so inclined, you can leave us a donation via Patreon, Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. All the info is at geopoliticsandempire.com. All right. So, Steve, I've had your site, srsroccoreport.com, bookmarked for over a decade uh, and visited it once in a while, and I've seen a lot of good information come from it. Uh, today, we hear on the news the general thesis that we have reached you know, peak oil or peak energy. There are many different analysts and experts who adhere to this general hypothesis, but which hold to their own differing, unique, or peculiar views. Uh, there are others that say peak oil or energy has been exaggerated. Can you start us off by giving your thesis on peak oil or, or the energy cliff and, and what you think of the other perspectives? Yes, uh, there's, there's two kinds of peaks. There is the conventional peak, which we have been in a plateau uh, of conventional oil production. And, and that's the higher quality, a higher energy return on investment and cheaper to produce oil. And that has been in about a plateau since about 2005. And what we have added has been uh, tight oil from your shale. We have added uh, Canadian oil sands and deep water. Those are all very expensive and they have a very low energy return on investment. Now, I can say that, but if we look at the data, the data always proves it. Now, ExxonMobil is one of the largest oil companies. It's the largest oil company in the United States, one of the largest oil companies in the world. And we can look, if we look at the data, we can see before shale and after shale. Now, before shale in 2005, uh, ExxonMobil invested in its U.S. oil and gas wells about $2.1 billion. That's what they did in 2005. They earned $6.2 billion in that year on $2.1 billion that they invested in their oil and gas wells. Well, let's fast forward to 2019. In 2019, they invested $11.6 billion. And how much did they, did they earn last year? They earned $431 million. So the oil price in 2005 was even higher than it was last year. And the production last year was six, they produced even more oil than they did in 2005. So if we look at the data, let's we throw out the conspiracy theories and we look at the numbers, ExxonMobil made more money back in 2005 on less capital expenditures. And now if we look at what happened last year, they spent six almost six times more capital and they their earnings were horrible and this year it's even worse so that's a perfect example of the falling energy return on investment so this is what we're facing now and so now we have when we hit peak unconventional oil production then we're going to start to see a, a real peak and decline of conventional they're they're probably both going to happen at the same time. And this pandemic has seemingly sped the process up. So just looking at that factor going forward, we're, we're going to hit this energy cliff. And we can talk more about that. But that's, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, this, that was a perfect example why we've hit this, we're starting to hit this energy cliff because the capital it takes now to produce oil is going up exponentially. And when the oil companies are not getting the same benefit as they were before they started getting into unconventional. 
Now, I know many listeners uh, have uh, this question as well and this perspective, but you know, I, I suppose one of the central reasons that people tend to question the peak oil idea is that it seems global elites have been manipulating it to serve their uh, agendas today. And in the past, we have seen global elites either fabric fabricate uh, global uh, agendas uh, out of whole, uh, whole cloth or let's say global issues or problems, or they take real problems, but that are not so existential and, and, and blow them up. Uh, and perhaps now in the case of, you know, peak oil, peak energy, the energy cliff, they take this real existential problem and then use it as a pretext uh, for their own power grab. So, you know, how do you factor in the global elites uh, when talking about the energy cliff? The elite have been controlling the population for thousands of years during the uh, Egyptian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. We can go on and we can go to the Spanish Empire. And then you have the English Empire. Now you have the U.S. Empire. And then China is trying to take a foothold as becoming the next largest uh, country empire. And the issue is, yes, the elite or are always going to kind of control the situation. However, what they've done is uh, th the issue is we have moved to a higher quality energy over the last thousands of years, and oil is it. There's there's nothing after oil, and that that's the problem. Um, uh, the machines today that are powered by uh, fossil fuels mostly do a hundred times the work that a human can do, and we've we've never had that before. Yeah, it never. And so when you have that kind of capability, you could do a lot of things. You could build infrastructure. You could build like in China cities to nowhere. So even though the elite tend to control uh, the overall equation, what they can control, and this is important for your listeners to understand, is the falling energy return on investment. And when the United States, John D. Rockefeller, started getting into and producing the oil in the U.S., we were producing oil in the 1930s when you include the discovery of the oil, 100 barrels of oil for the energy cost of one. So the energy return on investment was 100 to one. And now by the calculations by 1970, it fell to 30 to one. Now that's not inflation. That's the actual energy that was produced by the energy that was put into to get that oil. By the beginning of 2000, U.S. Uh, the energy from its uh, oil fell to 10 to 1. And now uh, shale oil is 5 to 1. Oil sands in, in Canada is 4 to 1. And if you want to try to get to those trillions of barrel of oil shale locked actually in shale that you have to crush in the mid in the western part of the United States, Utah, Wyoming, that's less than 2 to 1. And here's the problem. Our complex society that runs on a just-in-time inventory system globally needs a 10 to 12 to 1 energy return on investment to power everything. That's, that's, that's according to one of the top specialists, Charles Hall. It's about 10 to 12 to 1 to maintain all this, just to maintain it, not to really grow it. So when you start considering that oil sands and heavy oil and deep water and tar sands and shale oil is very low, it's it's allowing the, the economy to kind of limp along, but it's not paying the minimum requirement bills to run the system. And that's that's what it comes down to. And unfortunately, the elite can print money, but they can't print barrels of oil. And here's the issue. When you print money, and you don't have the energy to back it up, you look like Venezuela. And that's, I always say that. Hyperinflation, when you lose oil production, turns out to be Venezuela. When the US Federal Reserve dropped interest rates to zero in 2008-9, we brought on the shale oil production. So it wasn't the Fed's interest rate policy that brought us out of our financial, uh, the, the financial crisis. It was the eight and a half million barrels of tide oil from shale. You need the energy to do it, just like in in, uh, in World War II. It wasn't the it wasn't it was the oil production growth in the United States because we were the Saudi Arabia in the 30s and 40s. It was the oil production growth that pulled us out of the depression, and it was the oil production growth that allowed the U.S. and allies to win World War II. It all it all comes down to the energy. So if you don't have the growth of energy, you cannot 
pull yourself out of the problems that we're now facing. So Shale basically just bought us uh, a decade and now we're really at the end of the cliff and you say there's nothing after oil and rightfully so, I, I don't see anything. But now, you know, we have Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, the EU, everyone touting these um, green new deals, right? Now, I, I love solar energy. When I lived in the Gobi Desert uh, over a decade ago, I used the solar backpack from a wonderful, co wonderful company called Voltaic. I think listeners should check them out. Uh, but I certainly do not see solar or other renewables as any sort of replacement for traditional energy sources. But governments keep coming out and saying, you know, renewable energy is here and it's going to save us. I think I read recently, for example, Tasmania has said that it has become 100%, its, its energy production or electricity has become 100% renewable. I believe Germany keeps notifying us of how its, its elect electricity generation via renewables keeps climbing. I think they're somewhere at 40%. Uh, on top of that, it takes a lot of energy to extract the materials necessary to produce the rene renewable energy itself, the solar panels, the, the wind turbines. And you've pointed out how these things don't last long and end up creating a, an even bigger environmental disaster. So you call it the green energy myth. You know, are the governments lying? Are they greedy? Are they incom incompetent or just buying time? What, what's the story with the green energy myth? It's probably all three. It, it probably all three. They're greedy, they're uh, inept, and they're probably trying. It, it's... It's really fascinating to see this happen because since 2000, if you look at the, uh, the global energy production, uh, energy consumption, the, the production and consumption it, from 2000 to 2019, coal and, and natural gas, and that accounts for, let's, I'm just talking about electricity, not uh, oil that runs, that's the blood, that's the, like the, the blood system that runs the whole, the infrastructure and, and the supply chain. Um, the coal and natural gas accounted for 94% of the consumption since 2000. That's so, you know, it's, and 6% is wind and solar. So there you go. 94% coal and gas and 6% wind and solar. So even though we've had wind and solar, it's still a fraction of the overall situ situation. And you needed the uh, oil natural gas and coal, you have to burn those to make a wind turbine and the blades as well as the solar panels and all the equipment that it takes to make the solar panel farm. Uh, and so I think that's the issue. So if we don't have the, the uh, production of coal, natural gas, and oil, you, you cannot make the wind and solar power units because I call it, you, you, they, they're, not, they're not made from Star Trek replicators. They're made the old fashioned way. And you've got to, like you said, do all the mining. So the problem comes down to, it's like a conveyor belt. The wind turbine that was produced uh, and manufactured today, and that was, or let's say the last few months, and that was installed somewhere in Germany or the United States, wherever, Australia, in, in about 15 years, you've got to replace that. You either have to remanufacture, re rebuild the whole turbine, and then you have to replace the blades. So it's not renewable. It's like anything else. It ha and the only way you do that, you got to take that thing down. You've got to replace it. It, it. And that takes a lot of energy to do that. And when oil gets in trouble, and we're starting to get in trouble with oil, you're not going to have the ability to replace all these solar panels and all these wind turbines. So I think that's the issue where it comes down to, Hevoy, is that uh, uh, as the problems start to happen with fossil fuels, especially oil, oil's the number one factor because oil allows us to uh, extract and transport coal. Oil allows us to drill natural gas wells and, and, uh, and, and transport the pipe to have these, uh, the gas to be piped to different areas. So you need the oil to allow uh, natural gas and coal to function. And then of course you need oil, natural gas and coal to allow wind and solar. And so that's the green energy myth. Unfortunately, I think we're gonna see more insanity as more leaders push us more towards that. And so I, I do think they don't understand. Uh, I'm still, I still try to question it, but it, it, it makes no sense because electric vehicles and wind and solar are not a solution. Actually, they're, they cause more trouble, more problems. 
I just uh, a thought popped into my mind. So I, I, I've lived for a number of years in Central Asia, in, in Kazakhstan and, and Mongolia. And I know Mongolia, for example, has a trillion dollars worth of, of minerals uh, and resources. And Kazakhstan has uh, a lot as well, uh, petroleum, gas, uranium, gold. Uh, and I think Mongolia has a lot of coal as well. But you're saying that basically you need both uh, petroleum uh, as well as coal, you know, in terms of, let's say, electricity production in, in, in Mongolia. So even if they have a bunch of coal, uh, I mean, w what would be the effect with the you know petroleum declining, but they have a bunch of coal? Will that help them out at all, or you, you need like both of them together? Well, if we look at Venezuela now, Venezuela is not—it's more of a failed political state, but it's also it has a lot of heavy oil. It supposedly has one of the largest reserves in the world, but it's heavy oil and it's very low energy return on investment oil. It's expensive to produce. And it takes a lot of energy to produce it. So that worked when the price of oil was $60, $70, dollars $100. When it fell to the 30s and 40s, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense. So part of the problem for the breakdown of Venezuela has to do with the, the price of oil. And so when the produ oil production in Venezuela collapsed, you know what else collapsed? The electricity production. Electricity production is down 40%. So when you see a collapse in oil production, you're going to see a collapse in coal production. And yes, they could take coal and you can make a, you know, a liquid fuel from coal, but it, it, the, it's, it's too prohibitive. It, it, it's too prohibitive to do on a large scale. So yes, you know, uh, when you extract the coal, except for Germany, they use giant uh, bucket excavators that are, uh, they are powered by electricity. Most most countries, most, most companies use uh, mining equipment to extract coal. And, and, then it, and then once you get the coal, you've got to transport it. And that's transported by ship or by barge or by rail or by truck. And all those are not powered by nuclear power machines. Those are powered by diesel. So the diesel runs all that that can um, extract and transport the coal. And so that's that's what it comes down to. And so I think a lot of people don't get that. And, and so right now we're at this just in time. And look what's happening with China. There's a problem they have with Australia right now. They have this issue. Uh, they've cut down on imports, exports. There's like a trade war going between China and India and uh, China and Australia. And they imported a lot of coal that they're not getting enough coal. So they have to shut down some of their coal fire plants. So it, it is interesting that the dynamics with the pandemic have um, shown us a preview of what's going to happen because uh, oil production is almost down 10% this year, globally, about 9%. And that's a pretty big number. And that's why you're seeing central banks go crazy with all the money printing. You mentioned nuclear. If I'm not mistaken, I, I believe I've been noticing a trend of countries uh, um, ramping up their production of nuclear power plants. Uh, what about nuclear power? Is it viable? Uh, I remember this interesting quote back in the 50s from the nuclear power uh, industry in the United States. They said nuclear is going to be too cheap to meter. And it turns out it's not right. It's it's it's. Uh, and so now we're shutting down a lot of nuclear power plants in the United States, because if you're going to do those correctly, they have to be regulated and there have to be a lot of safety precautions, you know, because we learn from other countries when you do things wrong, you have problems. And so now the issue is when you look at the full cycle energy return on investment from extracting all the minerals and materials to, produce, to manufacture all the components and then build the nuclear power plant. And then you, you run it and then it has to be shut down. And then they, they don't know what to do with all the spent fuel. It's still sitting at most of these uh, nuclear power facilities. And so the problem is nuclear really isn't a good solution. It's energy return on investment is too low. And again, unfortunately, the world is not run by electricity. The world is run by liquid fuels because uh, most of most uh, grocery stores, supermarkets have about a two or three day supply. And that's that's possible only with liquid fuel. Electricity powers the electricity to put the, the grocery store, the lighting and, and the refrigeration and heating on. 
all the electricity, but to get the food and all the goods to that to that grocery store or that supermarket, you need the oil, you need the liquid fuel. And so I think that's the problem. We cannot transition from a liquid fuel system to a electric. It's, we, we don't have the energy to do that right now. So that's, that's another problem that people, you, you cannot plug and play nuclear, even if you wanted to, we do not have the energy to do that. We should, if we were going to do it, it still wouldn't have worked. But if we wanted to do that, we should have been serious two or three decades ago. So I'm reading an article today about a, a lunar gold rush. And so is the energy cliff why governments and private sector are rushing to the final frontiers uh, of the Arctic, which hosts, you know, a bunch of, you know, oil and natural resources and space as well in order to seek new energy sources to extract? What are your thoughts on, you know, the final frontiers, the Arctic and, and space? Yes, if you look at some of the projects today, it's it's unreal. Uh, you, if you look at, you know, they, uh, there was the Liberty a Liberty rig that was. Uh, um, the, the conspiracy theory is that uh, the there is no peak oil because there's all this oil off of the uh, uh, like in Alaska, the Prudhoe Bay, and there was a gentleman named uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. He was a doctor. Um, he was a he was a preacher that was up with the wealthy in in uh, northern. Part. Right, I know him too. I can't recall his name. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and he said that they they had the biggest rig in the world because it was the biggest field. It was called the Liberty Rig, and it was being run by BP. Well, after their disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, they just they were going to drill with that rig the longest horizontal well to get the to get to their field in in Alaska. The technical problems were so great they decided they didn't they didn't want another problem like they had with uh, Deepwater Horizon. So they stopped it. And so I think, you see, this is the issue. When you you look at the, it, in, in Saudi Arabia, when they tapped into Gwar, which was 5 million barrels a day, the biggest field in the world, the, the oil wells were very simple. Most oil wells in the 20s and 30s and 40s were very simple, very easy, very inexpensive to produce. To, to access this very high quality oil. Now we're going to a tight oil, which takes millions of pounds of fracking sand, millions of pounds of water, uh, 10 to 15 uh, semi-tractor trailers with these pumpers pumping in this fracking fluid to, uh, to frack the well. Uh, I mean, it, so this is the issue. And then some of these huge deep water rigs, very expensive. Yes, they're getting to oil. So this is, we have gone through the easy stuff. Now we're trying to access the hard stuff. And, and then the problem we have to consider, look at all the infrastructure that we have built in the last 100 years. That has to all be maintained. The highways, the interstates, um, all, the, all the infrastructure, the water, the sewer, the phone lines, the internet, uh, all the buildings, all these things have to be maintained. That takes energy that no one even considers the maintenance just for that. So I think you start to add up all these problems. Yes, we're trying to access this la this very hard to get, very expensive, just to keep the party going. And it will continue for a little bit longer, but I do believe in the next five, 10 years, the world is going to be a much different place. Yeah, I found the name of the pastor was Lindsay Williams. Yes, um, <laughs> Lindsay Williams. So based on the energy, Cliff, you say we're entering a never-ending global depression. That basically means a Cormac McCarthy, the road scenario, or if you prefer Mad Max or another dark age. It almost seems like the dystopian and technocratic world of Matt Damon's uh, Elysium, where the 0.1% elites will have their own or attempt to have their own breakaway civilization uh, as the rest of us kind of suffer. You know, can you paint... Uh, a picture of what's on the other side of the energy cliff and you know for example are you sure we can't recover in a decade or two or are you saying you know this is really it and pretty much we're just going to have to get accustomed to living you know a minimalist uh, frugal lifestyle well if i was to say i guarantee that next five you know it this is it i can't say that i could always be wrong but when you look at the data, when you understand that in, in the last 10 years, the U.S. has accounted for 80, almost 85% of global oil production growth, you can't have GDP growth unless you have oil production growth. 
But it, it, that's there's plenty of charts to show that. So if we look at the, the global economy, we can thank U.S. shale oil production that grew. Uh, it, it it went up exponentially. It, it you know from almost nothing to over eight million barrels a day, and then we include natural gas liquids and all that. And so the problem with that is it, it declines almost fifty percent a year. You see the old the giant oil fields like in Gowar, they they decline between five to seven percent a year. Well, we just brought on this tight oil production from the US and it has increased a lot, but it declines 50% a year. So there's a massive amount of capital to keep that going. And that's where I give you the, the example of ExxonMobil before and after shale. It, no, they're not making any money. And so now when you look at the situation in the world and you understand that we're, we were consuming 100 million barrels a day of petroleum liquids day in and day out. That takes a lot of, of energy to, to do that. And so now, um, I think one issue that we need to understand, uh, high tech, and this is, this is a very important part. There's uh, high, people think that the high tech is going to be the future. Well, if you look at the typical semiconductor that goes into uh, graphics cards, goes into uh, the, uh, the computers, the servers that run everything, either the banking servers, even the servers that run the internet, those have to be replaced within about four years, the banking servers. Every four years, you have to replace those. You can update them a little bit, but about four years, you have to replace it. A Bitcoin miner is two years. It's even worse. You have to replace that in two years. Those semiconductors, from beginning to end, I did the research, 25,000 miles, they have to round trip. So when you think of the uh, the high tech that the elite are going to have, the high tech, and then most of the people are going to be in squalor, you need a huge global supply chain of over 50 countries to be able to produce that semiconductor. When the system starts to, uh, let's say the energy becomes problematic and the global supply chain starts to break down, you cannot make that semiconductor because those who manufacture those semiconductors are not telling other people their, their intellectual property. They're going to keep that with them. So this is the problem we're facing. So I, I, I do think the, this, this idea that a certain small uh, percentage of the population, the wealthy, the elite, are going to have all the high tech, they can't because you need the entire global supply chain to work to make that high tech possible. And perhaps uh, another aspect uh, of this has to do with, you know, after the energy cliff, we're hearing this talk of a new global monetary system. The IMF has called it a new Bretton Woods moment. Some say gold will be an anchor in this new global system. There's also talk of a, a one world uh, currency that global elites have pined for since 1944 and uh, the Bancor, right? Today we have the special drawing, right? SDR. Central banks are seeking to have us go cashless, meaning to eliminate physical cash and go with digital currencies. Uh, what are your thoughts on this new Bretton Woods moment? What the transfiguration of the system might look like, as well as the technocratic potential of digital currencies, given what you just told us about, uh, you know, the supply chain and everything going forward? I think that's probably one of the most misunderstood uh, notions about a cashless society and about a high-tech digital dollar. Now, I actually, in the next several years, maybe in the next year or so, especially if, uh, if the U.S. presidency, the presidency is uh, Biden becomes a Democrat presidency, I think we could see the Federal Reserve finally get past the digital dollar policy. And what that would mean instead of doing QE, uh, which you have to borrow the money and then and and then you you have to add the debt. Um, what you would do then is you would the, the, the Federal Reserve would just issue money directly to Americans and there would be no increase in debt. And you wouldn't lower then that wouldn't impact interest rates lower. I, I do think that's a very high possibility. So the world could get a lot more insane uh, in, in as in monetary uh, situation as this energy cliff starts to really work. And so the, the problem is if you drive 
around, especially in the United States, and you go to any travel stop when the electricity is down and you need gas, they say, I'm sorry, we can't take any credit cards. All we could take is cash. Well, I'm, you know, you're, then you, get, <laughs> you know, they have power to run the pumps, but they, they cannot use the credit card machine. And so the, all you could use is cash. I don't think we, we would go to a totally, we can't go to a totally cashless uh, because you, you need a very efficient um, infrastructure to continue to run a cashless society. Even though we may see the governments continue to push towards that, maybe right when they get there, it'll start to fall apart because it's it's just too fragile. And so I think, uh, I still think the precious metals, and we can get into this, the precious metals are a store of value because they store this energy, which basically energy is the economy. If you don't have energy, you don't have an economy. And if you don't have energy, you don't have money. And so... Uh, even if we go to a cashless society, the problems with energy are going to disrupt that infrastructure that runs the cashless society. And I think the most fragile, like Bitcoin, that, that's going to fall apart first. And I, I think people just don't understand that. Right. Since you mentioned, that was my next question, precious metals, right? So gold uh, and silver and you know, going forward after the energy cliff, how do you see that? as a factor for individuals, for nation states, international institutions, uh, you know, and how high in price do you think uh, they can go? I mean, I guess there's no top, but then again, the question is, you know, if gold goes to 10,000 an ounce, obviously the equivalent uh, in fiat uh, currency will not be so great. And then, you know, what are some things people would want to potentially exchange their, their gold for? So, you know, what are your thoughts on metals going forward? Well, this could take a little time to play out. When you look at where most people are invested, it's stocks, bonds, and real estate and businesses. And we, the pandemic gave us a preview of what happened to commercial real estate that was was a very large percentage uh, of a safe investment for pension plans, for insurance companies, uh, for many different uh, investment uh, houses. And now I believe the commercial real estate market in the United States is dead. Uh, the pandemic sped the process. I saw that happening within the next few years, but the pandemic has sped the process up. And then it's just going it's going to continue to work itself into uh, uh, stocks and bonds and even uh, other forms of real estate like residential real estate. And so when people are invested 99% or more are invested in these assets, they don't protect wealth because you need the energy to flow in the system to allow the traffic and the economic activity to give these uh, assets value. And so when the energy production starts to fall, then the asset values of all these different things start to decline. And that's why I call it a depression that never ends. Now, if they do hyperinflation, we could see asset values go up, but it, it'll be meaningless. But we have to consider what would the uh, a lot of these big cities and country, uh, these big uh, metropolises look like with half of the energy run through them. Well, you're talking about a lot of vacant buildings, a lot of vacant residential homes. And so I think that's the issue. When people start to realize that they're, these are not real uh, assets, they're, they're going to, the energy cliff will turn assets into liabilities. However, one of the few assets that won't turn into a liability is gold and silver, physical gold and silver, because the it's a store of energy equivalent value. And I think that's more and more investors are starting to wake up. And so in, in conclusion, the value of the precious metals have been based upon a commodity, what it costs to produce them and supply and demand. And the reason why gold has been about 70, 80 times that of silver will the, it costs about 70 to 80 times more to produce gold than it does silver. Now, there isn't that much gold and silver to get your hands on in the world. It's probably about two and a half billion ounces of gold and about five billion ounces of silver, two to one. And if we look back in ancient times, it wasn't just the, the, the energy cost to produce these metals that gave them their value. It was how much metal that was in the society. So when you start to understand that there's only two times more silver, when investors want to actually acquire that metal, there's not that much more. So I think we're going to see a big disconnect 
in the cost and the value of these things as commodities to what you could actually get. And there's not that much more silver. So that's when we would see the value of silver go up much higher than gold. And lastly, you wouldn't want to sell gold if even if it hit $10,000, because what, what are you going to do with that, the fiat money? You only would sell your metal in the future to buy things that you need. Or you could trade gold for silver or silver for gold. That's I think that's the wisest thing to do is not to not to trade your 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 precious metals for fiat currency, but for th- actual things that you need. And speaking of gold, I've heard it from people that in Mexico right now, for example, you cannot buy gold uh, at all in the country of Mexico, which is quite shocking. You know, you you call up the banks, the central bank of Mexico has no gold, so. You're out of luck. You cannot buy gold, physical gold in Mexico. That's pretty insane. And uh, so you mentioned cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Some people tout it as great or great salvation or tulip mania. From the very beginning, I've felt that Bitcoin only had value in the near term with this run up that we're seeing now. But I firmly believe that in the long term, um, it's not going to go well. Uh, and so and, and you mentioned things as well, such as there's too much of a requirement of, of energy input going into the mining. Uh, and so what, uh, what, what's your final thought on, you know, cryptos? Bitcoin uh, may continue higher. I, I, I have no idea how high that uh, Bitcoin can go. It could go because you, you look at Tesla. Tesla is a perfect example of the dot-com on steroids. Uh, investors actually go insane. And I'm not saying in a clinical but in an investing mentality, they just go insane. They, they, I, I see so many fraudulent, and Jim Kanos is a legendary short seller. 30% of his uh, companies that he's short are fraudulent companies. But what's amazing, the investors continue to push those stock prices even higher, even though they're fraudulent companies. So this is where he calls it, we're in the uh, new golden age of fraud. And so... We could see Bitcoin Bitcoin go up even higher. The problem is it does consume a lot of energy to produce Bitcoin, but that's just part of the problem. And then you've, you've got to replace the miners. Well, here's the issue. Some people say, well, if that becomes a problem, I'll just keep my Bitcoin in my wallet, in, in a special a digital wallet. Well, what are you going to do with that Bitcoin? Because you need a Bitcoin miner to perform a transaction to sell that Bitcoin. Well, if you wanted to go to the store and you had to and you wanted to buy groceries and it came down to it, they would take your silver. You don't need an intermediary to sell something for silver. You could even go to a pawn shop or a dealer. You could go to a precious metal dealer and sell your silver. You don't need someone to sell it for you. Bitcoin, you need a miner to sell that Bitcoin or to buy a Bitcoin. So, I do agree with you. I think uh, Bitcoin is ba- the, the best thing I can say about Bitcoin. It's a highly speculative trade. And if you're smart enough to make money out of it, good. But I would not consider it a long-term store of value. I think it's going to get into a lot of trouble in the future. Is there any solution for the uh, energy cliff in terms of any way of being able to replace the the current energy source of oil that we've been using for the last century. Uh, I know you've uh, on your channel, I've just, I haven't had time to watch, uh, but you've done some interviews with people who are now creating these new forms of uh, energy. And so um, is it basically, you know, just brace for impact uh, and prepare for this dark age or are are there any new technologies that are are going to allow us to, at least in some ways, replace oil? Well, one of the one of the problems with the way we're using energy, it's very inefficient. And I interviewed Dr. Louis Arnault, and he has a solution he calls NGENI. I, I don't know if it's going to work, but what it does is it tries to tap into all the waste energy. Now, uh, basically, of the energy that we burn a year, we, it's 12% efficient. The other 88% is lost as weight heat, waste heat or it's gone up as pollution into the atmosphere. So we're very inefficient with the energy we're using. What he uh, is trying to do is to develop this, this kind of technology that's very low cost, 
very simple to produce. It's not like a turbine that's very, very complex and has very, uh, very expensive materials and parts is to tap into this waste energy. So that would be a solution. Unfortunately, I don't know. It took 20, 30, 25 years for the transistor to after it was discovered for it to go into commercial production. We don't have that 20, 25 years for something like this. And so while we have a small window for some, some kind of technology that would actually tap into and recover this waste heat and use it, yes, that that, that is one of the only viable solutions we have. But unfortunately, I, I think it's like the last the last quarter of the of, of the of the game in the last few minutes we just run out of the time and if you look at joseph tainer's work on comp the, the collapse of complex societies the more complex a society become in the it became in the past the the quicker the demise of of the of the um the empire or the civilization so complexity the you use complexity to solve complexity and the more complex you get then all of a sudden you have what is known as the seneca cliff which is very similar to the energy cliff so i think that's one another issue where the 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 world is too complex and where it you know the just-in-time system is too complex and and so i to answer your question, there is probably a solution, but I don't think we've got the smart enough leaders to be able to uh, make that make that solution work. I think we're going to go like most civilizations in the past, and you know the Roman Empire. It took you know it took decades decades to collapse. So this is when you look in the rearview mirror, you go, oh gosh, yeah, it collapsed, but it, it could take it could take decades to collapse. I'm just curious about your thoughts on the future of transport. I can't imagine because everyone's used to their individual automobiles now to do anything. And we've already started to see countries, uh, well, Ireland, uh, Japan, the state of California recently declared by 2030. So in 10 years now, uh, you won't be able to purchase uh, a gas powered vehicle. Uh, and so what are your thoughts on the future of transport? It, it, one way or another, are we going to just see cars just disappear and then we're, we'll just be walking or riding our bikes or driving EVs or taking the bus? Well, the interesting thing about an EV is uh, it's still attached to an uh, energy system that we use that's only 12% efficient. And that's the problem. You've got to solve, we're wasting 88% of the energy. So, it's like anything else. You look at your, uh, if you're going into debt as a home or a business, you, you can't be in debt. You, you, you've got to be able to make money. So when you look at our energy system that we're wasting 88% of it, well, that's the problem. Going to an EV doesn't change the 88% in efficiency. Actually, it makes it worse. And so even though Germany may have wind turbines and, and solar panels, they they extracted those materials from somewhere else and lithium and a lot of the rare earths, the production of it's very, it's very toxic. And so even though some, some countries can put a smile on their face that they're green, some other country in the third world is getting polluted and is burning a lot of the energy over there to allow this supposed green energy over here. So I think, I think the green energy idea that we're, we're actually solving the carbon issue, if you if you believe in that, it you, you're spending all the you're burning all the carbon to make that battery for the EV, and then you, it's amazing how much lithium, how much cobalt, how much copper you're going to need to transition only a small fraction of the the global autos to EV. It, it can't be done. It just it just can't be done. And that's the problem. We, 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 will not, we won't have the energy, we won't have the metals and, and, and the materials to scale up EV or wind or solar. And so I've, there's so many more problems to talk about with the renewables, these, these renewables, all alternative energy sources. Uh, if they were real solutions, I would say, okay, let's give them a shot, but they're not. And so I think that's, that's the problem. We, we won't have the materials to be able to ramp these things up. 
So finally, I guess my last question is, you know, what are some key ways uh, you would recommend for people to prepare for this coming Mad, Mad Max uh, world? You know, I, I think one of the most basics, you know, buying precious metals, perhaps getting some agricultural land, growing food, uh, investing in real things like, you know, tools that you'll, you know you'll need for the years to come. Uh, what are some key principles going forward? I think you just named them. And uh, you see, when you've got this cheap energy, you can allow someone else to run your life for you. Uh, if you use a bus to get to work, you can allow the bus system to get you to work. And then they maintain the roads to put that bus on. And so, and uh, I don't know if you heard, but Greyhound bus, their, their uh, ridership in the United States is down 80%. So basically, the commercial bus line in the United States is 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 dead, and so there's so many. I'm telling you, there's just so many dead industries now. I don't think they're going to come back. They may come back a little bit, but they can't come back. They need to come back a lot to be remain profitable. And so I think what you just said is what need people need to do because it, with the pandemic, we've seen people move from the big city because they worried about what was shutdowns in the big city. You hear when they're going to shut down something that uh, like in maybe in London or in France, Paris, or maybe some of the largest cities in the U.S. in Los Angeles, people wanted to leave there. And so they, they, you see all this traffic and people are selling their homes in the big city and they're moving to the suburbs or maybe a few to the city or the country. So you're going to see more of the exodus to the suburbs, but the suburbs won't help either. Because they're just, to run a suburb, it takes a lot of energy. So people, the next exodus is going to be to the country. Because in the country, in a modest home, on a little bit of land, you, you, can, you can do a lot better. You can survive. And so I think that's what we're going to see now in the next five, 10 years. This idea that people are going to be pushed more into a city, I, I don't think so. I think we're going to see more people move away from a city because the cities will not, you cannot maintain them on the energy. And so take control. You people need to take control of their life. If you're, you know, I believe people should be in precious metals because of the store of value, the energy equivalent value and learn how to do things yourself, grow food, cook. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of people don't even know how to cook. So I, I think if you do these things, it's better for you to grow your own food. It's better for you to know how to prepare your own meals. And it's better for you to take your responsibility of your life because it is each individual's responsibility to take care of their life. Do you have any final thought for us? I believe 2021 is going to surprise people. Um, uh, the, the economic uh, fundamentals, I think, are going to continue to disintegrate, even though we're seeing stimulus checks and money printing and all that. Uh, I, I think it, there was a, there was a major, major uh, hit to the economy. And I, mean, I was just looking at the refining capacity in the United States. It's, it's, it's down 3 million barrels a day from the same period last year. 3 million barrels a day in the United States are down. And so uh, we may see a little recovery, but I, I don't think uh, the, the People really realize how bad the situation is fundamentally, not stock market-wise, but fundamentally. And I think we're going to see more of that next year. And I do believe that's going to impact the markets. So I think we're going to start to see some serious fireworks next year in 2021. And I do believe the metals, the precious metals, as I mentioned before, the, the amount of physical and ETF silver investment this year was the highest ever. The highest ever. It, it it accounted for seventy five percent of global mine supply. It's it's never been that high. If we get another year like that, I don't think they're going to be able to access the silver. So I do think we're going to we're in the next few years we're going to see more record physical silver and gold buying. And so I think pay attention to the energy and pay attention to the precious metals and pay attention to the economic fundamentals. And I think people are going to be really surprised next year. 
Yeah, I would agree with you. And I, I think you've you've pretty much convinced me of your thesis uh, on the energy cliff. You've pushed me off the energy cliff, so to speak. Uh, people can find SRS Rocco on, on Twitter, on YouTube, and your website. I believe the report has offered free content since 2013, but now you're going to be mostly offering your content only to paid subscribers. Uh, can you tell us more about the report and what people can get from subscribing and your plans for 2021? Yes, we we have the silver and gold members. I uh, put out. I try to put out original information. A, a lot of analysts tend to regurgitate the same things, but I, I think people want original analysis. What's changing? What's happening with energy? What's happening with the precious metals? We we all, we talk about these different things, the dynamics that are changing, the data, and I also look at the, some the mining companies. I, I do believe some stocks are going to do okay, but these are more speculative. The most important thing is to people to be in, in physical precious metals. But if some people want to speculate, I think the miners are going to uh, surprise people um, in the next several years. And so we we look at energy, the, the energy return on investment, uh, the gold and silver, the the economics, and and the mining industry, and and I look at individual stocks of how they're performing. And so people are more than welcome to check us out. And I, I do put out four to five new posts a week. And so we, we do think this information, uh, people would get a lot better understanding of what the future holds. All right. I do highly recommend listeners check out the SRS Rocco report. Uh, at, I think it's SRS R-O-C-C-O report.com. And I really do think Steve is onto something here and his analysis may prove invaluable to you uh, for you on the road ahead. And so thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. It's been a pleasure. Look, and maybe next year we could uh, do an update to see how things have turned out. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.